1889 on a windy little island halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica, a supervillain began boiling penguins. The man's name was Joseph Hatch. He was a known poacher, a ruthless capitalist, and a drug merchant. Up until now, Hatch had made his money dealing in powdered bone, seal oil, blubber, and other animal parts. But now, with the invention of a new type of boiler, he found he could extract oil from smaller animals, friendlier animals, animals who hadn't developed a fear of humans yet. The machines had to use were called steam digesters. Imagine huge cylindrical pressure cookers, like heavy rusted vats, where hundreds of penguins could be rendered down into oil to the tune of 1,000 royal penguins per day, per digester. The island Hatch chose to decimate was Macquarie Island because Hatch had discovered that whales and seals took time and effort to hunt. They had to be killed, carved up, and carted back to the boilers. Penguins, on the other hand, were easier to handle, friendlier, they could be herded toward the boilers live, then clubbed and loaded. When Joseph Hatch sold his penguin oil, he found it to be highly lucrative, but also highly unpopular. In fact, Joseph Hatch's penguin massacre started a campaign to defend the penguins, but not just any campaign, the first ever international PR campaign to stop the murder of endangered species. That's how villainous Joseph Hatch was, even in his own time. And yet, Joseph kept on boiling. He found himself again and again defending his action to the public, to Parliament, and to the courts. I think it's safe to say Joseph Hatch knew he was the villain of this story. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no duh on the internet and get to the juicy facts about evil. Does it pay to be the bad guy? That's the question we're asking today. With politics and corporate America, it sure seems like being ruthless, villainous, or just plain nasty really wins big in the long term. And most high-earning CEOs readily admit to having tempers or being outright ruthless when they need to be. We're looking at you, Jeff Benzos. To get to the bottom of what it takes to win, We're looking at three of our closest held myths. Myths that might be too optimistic to be true. Myth one, happy people live longer, more fulfilling lives. I mean, countries have happiness indexes for a reason, right? Myth two, good people make just as much money as jerks and not all rich people are assholes. Myth three, can a rich supervillain like Joseph Hatch be reformed. Put it another way, could we pull a Scrooge on Jeff Benzo or reform any rich a-hole? But first I want to talk to you about how we arrived at this episode and how long Joe has been telling this story about these boiling penguins. (laughs) How many years have you... I'll tell you why, because he'll lead the conversation with this. And say, hey, have you heard about this? And these are people that don't know him, so they probably think he's crazy. Yeah, if I'm at a bus stop for too long uh, and there are people who are not listening to their headphones, I will start telling them about penguin boilers. <laughs> um, I, I first read about this in, I think, an Atlas Obscura article. And then um, even better, uh, I don't plug a lot of other people's podcasts here. 
Um, but if anyone hasn't heard it, there's a fantastic dollop episode um, with Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. We're going to talk about Joseph Hatch, the villain, um, but they do a fantastic uh, episode about what happens on Macquarie Island, and it is pure unbridled horror movie. It's just animal horror as they sort of hunt down the cutest animals on Earth and boil them and, and cut them up. We talked about it off the air. We're talking about if, if we could, we would bring these people back to life so we could kill them for all the meanness, nastiness thing they did. Right. We would boil them into oil, <laughs> and, and the public would be fine with it, I and swear. And digest them in a digester. Right. I love that name. I, I was We were talking about this earlier. The name digester. If they had just said boiler or vat, it would have been fine. It feels like it's pulling you apart slowly, killing you slowly and painfully. Yeah, a digester. That's so gross. That, that is like that's uh, that's like a Star Wars creature. Like like that's that's the Sarlacc basically. I'm going to threaten somebody. I'm, I'm not just going to eat you. I'm going to digest you. I'm going to digest <laughs> you. Yeah, that's that's a that's a threat you get at the bar. So, um we want to talk about the digester a little bit before we get into um our main topic, which is uh, does it pay to be a villain? Because um, I, I suspected it might before the episode, before we got into the research. Um, but first, I want people to really understand how dangerous these boilers were, the, the digester. Um, so, Todd, uh, how, many, how many penguins is too many penguins to boil all at the same time? How many do you imagine these digesters could do? I don't know, 30, 50 at a time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought these were... Oh, you can... By the way, anyone listening to this episode will probably have this in the, the podcast episode um, uh, information and links. The digesters, the pictures of them, you can see them because they're still on Macquarie Island and they're old and rusty and they're sitting on the beaches. I, my, my screen background at work, I swear to God, is a crowd of penguins around these rusty digesters. Well, they were made originally for elephant seals and bigger. Totally. Yeah. So um, that's a that's perfect point. Uh, um, so four elephant seals and large animals. Each boiler was made to be seventeen cubic meters, uh, which means they never did this. Just just letting you know, this isn't um, getting into body horror, but um, that means technically you could fit six humans uh, into one cubic meter. Uh, which means about 15 people's mass could be fit into one cubic meter if you chopped them up or, or if they were in liquid mass. It's a lot of penguins. So theoretically, one digester could fit about 102 cramped people or 255 mashed people. Um, so again, that's, that's a bit of horror. Um, we're just talking volumes and masses, uh, uh, but that means thousands of penguins. Um, we, we set up top that uh, one boiler would do about a thousand penguins a day, and that's just because these were like being stacked in like cordwood. Um, so after we know the volume one of these digesters could handle, I'm going to ask Todd, how many did they actually kill in total? Like how, how bad was this penguin apocalypse? Keep in mind there were seasons, and they were sometimes working by the law, most of the time not. Three million penguins over 30 years. <laughs> that is so many penguins. It is. And and they picked one that was not the biggest penguin, because you think you'd pick the biggest ones because that you want volume, right? Right. But they picked the most plentiful ones, which were the royal ones. Okay. So, so the one that became endangered because of this. Absolutely. It's flirting with extinction. Okay, and the one we see on TV that that is um, uh, that, that we usually see—that's an emperor penguin, right? Yeah, it's it's not the common one that we're used to in all the movies and everything. Okay, but it's still a damn cute bird. Okay, and and did did Hatch? How much heat did he get over this? He was in and out of court, so he killed three million penguins over thirty years. Okay, he was in and out of court for thirty years. Okay, so the whole time he's doing this. Absolutely. He was in and out. Um, and he was an interesting guy. So he goes to court, and he was a gifted public speaker. He was a successful businessman. He was a chemist. He was a mayor. He'd done a lot of things. But he had two, and this is kind of funny, um, he had two things that he, that he was his big talking points. And one was Old Testament fear, that God gave us animals to use for our, for our purpose. It's God's will. 
Okay. So, so that appeals to a lot of the Christian, you know, conservative Christian. And the other one was, guess what, Joe? Jobs. Our economy. <laughs> Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? He's creating jobs with the penguin. penguin exactly. So he was a pretty crafty guy. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm going to get on board with the penguin killer, but I can, I can totally see those arguments working. Every time he went to court, there was always huge crowds that came. So anytime he was in trouble... Half of the people came to boo him. Another half came to listen to him speak. I guess he was this real herky-jerky, but very smart and very witty. And so it was like an event. It was some real entertainment. I I would go to that. Like, like, like you say that, and, and we kind of laugh. Like, like, ha, 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 people are going to go see the crazy man defend his penguin boilers. But if you knew he was good at talking... Wouldn't you go see that guy? Like, like the 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 mad villain is going to be uh, uh, in your local court defending himself. Let's go. And fifty percent of the people want him hung right then. Right. Put in one of his digesters, and, and the other want to be on his side. He was very good at painting a picture, a vision of how economic, uh, how good, how how rich the, their island could become if they follow, listen to him. Okay. It's 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 hard to turn down a vision. I think. So, I mean, this is a ridiculous question, but back then, theoretically, uh, knowing yourself, knowing your own mind, do you think you could have sided with Hatch? Never, ever. <laughs> Penguin boiling is too much. No, I'm just too much of an animal lover. I love, I could boil people more likely. Yeah. You, It'd be way easier for that. me. And I have a list of people that I put in first. Yeah. Usually when we, we read history articles, I'm, I usually side with the public because I think to myself, times were different. Of course, I probably would have agreed with the craziness we're reading about. But with Hatch, because so many people were against him and publications went against him, I actually think that I think everyone recognized how much of a villain th this guy was. So can we talk a little bit about evil now? Please. You're darker than we've already gotten. Right. How dark can we make this podcast? Um, so before we started this, uh, um, did you believe in, in sort of or at least suspect in your life that villainous people prospered more? Have you ever had bad bosses that make you think if That's I could just I, be that evil? Yeah, that they just cut, they cut everyone's throat, stabbed everyone in the back, and now I'm working for them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Disney and... and, and stories try to teach us that they will get their comeuppance that they, they, they can't possibly prosper in the long run but not in real they, life in real life they go to bed sleep like a baby right they they sleep like a baby after they swim in their own pool and then they yeah no, it, it, it seems unfair so we went and we dug out the research we want to know um do miserable people live longer do they live better lives um we, we had an episode uh, called Polar Opposite Collaborators, and in that we briefly talked about does it pay to be the bad guy in the boardroom if you can yield results, if being the bad guy gets results. Um, and I'm starting to kind of see a pattern here that, that possibly being the bad guy in very narrow circumstances can get you results. So first off, uh, uh, we're hearkening to a, a article from the BBC called... Um, it's it's BBC Future, Why It Pays to Be Grumpy and Bad-Tempered. Um, so that title alone probably tells you where we're headed with this episode. <laughs> um, so, Todd, uh, do you have... Uh, you don't have to reveal too much, but um, do, you, do you ever have anger problems? <laughs> yes, I, I do. Not as many as I used to. I used to have a real problem with it. So... Um, uh, in, in what way did it manifest? Is it, is it seething anger or is it quick-tempered anger? It's I call it monkey mad. Okay, so it's and, quick. And a lot of it's internal, but yeah. Okay. It's not a pretty thing. It's not something I'm proud of. It's something I've worked on. But it's still there. I still can get monkey mad sometimes. Okay, so so yeah, thrash around and, and, and yeah, uh, the, the what is it, the, the pot boiling or the... the yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The angry Irishman look. <laughs> right, boiled over. <laughs> A potato head turning red. 
Uh, I get the other way. I, I have the slow anger. Like I will, I will feel offended by somebody at like a cocktail party, or, or somebody will cut me off, and then just over the course of several days, I will start building a grudge. So just hating them. Yeah. Um, so the our, our first uh, uh, key point to being evil. Evil people generally show a lot of aggression and anger. Um, so anger can it be good for you? Um, this BBC article talked about how angry people um, have an easier time discriminating between weak and strong arguments. So w- when you see uh, articles about Jeff Bezos uh, getting angry and yelling at his team and calling them names, or you see articles about uh, um, the guy that leads Facebook, uh, um, Zuckerberg, uh, getting irate or saying snooty things, um, turns out when you get angry... Um, you can, uh, it's easier to discriminate as a decision maker, uh, over people who have neutral moods. Um, there was a, also a meta study on anger, um, looking at, uh, uh, incidences of cancer and cardiovascular disease and asthma and diabetes. And they found that people are at higher risk when they repress, when they're called repressed copers for their anger. Um, so it's so, better to blow your top then, than to hold it in and be the more mature, emotionally intelligent one. Right. So we're looking across the table right now, and Todd just revealed that he is a quick-to-anger, monkey-mad, blow-off-the-steam-and-it's-gone. Apparently that is more healthy for you than what I do. <laughs> I am boiling. I'm not, just, I'm not just boiling steam here and, and getting mad over the course of several days. I am boiling and building cancer. I'm... I'm, I'm so, listeners, which one are you? you got to be in one or the other. So don't say you never get mad because right. we know you're lying. Yeah, so when you when you get angry, it's it's apparently better. And, again, there's a lot of self-awareness that goes into it. You need to know what's a healthy place for you to express anger and a healthy way for you to express anger. Don't go punching holes in walls and, and don't scream at your spouse. Um, but repression is not good, generally, is the, the takeaway for this article. Uh now we get to another side of being evil, which is most evil people are portrayed as being cynical. Uh, also, um, a lot of humans are portrayed as being cynical. You don't, you don't have to be angry and evil. Uh, you don't have to be cynical and evil. You can be just angry or just cynical. Um, but these, these are traits that come with um, evil in the zeitgeist, the way we see things. Um, so cynics. Uh, Todd, do you consider yourself to be a cynical person? I don't, but I'm, as I'm getting older, I, it's starting to creep. And from hanging out with you, I, I was I about to say, I don't know if that's age or just knowing me. <laughs> you made me more cynical. <laughs> I used to be Mister. There are, you know, it's all roses and have a great day. Now I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Well, I, I think there's a lot to be said for someone that 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 is not cynical that that recognizes the value of happiness, the value of enjoying what they have, um, but. But if you are cynical or if you're starting to have some of that creep in, it can, it can serve you as long as you don't let it take over. Do you consider yourself more of a cynic? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a very positive thinker, but that comes after cynicism. I have to choose positivity. I, I, I start with my baseline is cynic. Is measuring. Is it, yes. protecting yourself. from Exactly. It's, it's always... I plan for the worst. I plan for um, my. I, I wish I could use the word plan. Actually, it's more like my instinct tells me bad things will happen. I react to it as such, and then I adjust for being positive. Joe Anthony is very stoic in his approach to life. I, I am. Um, it made me feel better reading this article, though, because I thought that cynicism was going to get me killed. Like it would just poison me. Um, but apparently, according to this article, uh, cynics generally have more stable marriages. They earn more money uh, if they're self-employed uh, over uh, optimists who are self-employed. And they live longer uh, if they are more pessimistic about their future and their future satisfactions. See, um, I would think the positive person would have the better marriages. Yeah. You? yeah you, you, would, you would imagine so, that, yeah. that you know... You, who wants and, to live with a miserable cuss? Yeah, and make more money and all. I think it would be the exact opposite. Well, what I could find is um, cynics are more realistic about their chances. So both with marriage and with money, 
Um, they're more realistic about. I mean, they they believe the worst will happen, so they plan for it. They measure more and they prepare more, so they last longer. Makes sense, right? So when the worst happens in a marriage, when they run into rocky times or they run out of money, they've they've planned for it because they are a cynic. Apparently, or they don't set a standard of so everything's okay. When in real life, it's tough times for everybody. It rains on everybody the same, right? There's a, um, uh, a quote from Psychology and Aging that I'd like to read. Um, it, it's, it's a quote, survival analysis revealed that in later adulthood, underestimating one satisfaction uh, five years later was related to lower hazard ratios for disability and mortal- mortality across 10 or more years, even after controlling for age, sex, education, income, and self-rated health. Meaning... Be cynical, and you will um, not expect as much, and you'll be happier with what you get. Uh, but again, that comes with a lot of self-awareness. Don't be like um, Dr. House, that level of cynical. That's just miserable. But there is a line between self-aware, cynical, and, and being a miserable bastard. And just some being a blind optimist, too. Right. Um, one last thing from this same article, the BBC article. Um, according to this... Um, habitual good moods can sap your drive because if you're in a good mood all the time, uh, apparently it makes you more gullible and potentially selfish. Um, and we're not going to get into that too much. That we, We'll save that for our, our happiness or goodness episode where we're focusing on evil today. Um, but there is apparently a negative side to um, being positive all the time. Um, and it's not a big negative. You, you will, again, live a happier life and potentially healthier. It's just there are a couple benefits to being a kook or a crank. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to um, get back to our, our, our man, Joseph Hatch? I want to take you on his journey here. He went out, he bought a 45-ton. The name of the boat was an Awaro. And like I talked to you about before, there were seasons to this. You couldn't just go hunt whenever you wanted. So he being, he, but our our villain here, our CEO jerk here, he didn't like to follow the rules. He okay. didn't think the rule applied to him. He, they were just kind of inconvenient. So the street name, they started going calling behind his back. The rower started being called the poacher. That's what it was referred to by. So everybody knew what he was up to. So his first boat like his 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 first real investment it already has a villain name <laughs> right exactly that's that's starting pretty early <laughs> um so he went to macquarie island and he put gangs of his people out there and they were hunting um elephant bulls and the way they're supposed to be doing doing the whaling and that but it just didn't work out it wasn't uh, economic success in the first year, they only extracted 10 tons of oil, and it cost them more than that to, to have all that labor and work out there. Okay. So when he brought the idea of the penguins thing, the city, the town people were absolutely disgusted. They were not interested in that. <laughs> so he didn't care about the social pressure. He had a, like seven kids, and he was very involved in the community. So he just didn't give a shit what other people thought. I would, uh, I so want to be there for that town meeting. I mean, like, when when the crazy guy who is, like, known as a supervillain and has a, a, a boat named the Poacher. Right, with this whip-thin body. And I guess he had this herky-jerky way he talked and this <laughs> crazed blue eyes. I mean, of just, oh my God. just says greed. I, and, and, and him standing up and saying, I have an idea. Just imagine everyone just like like everyone just like shut shut up shut up let's listen to this let's hear this we have to hear this. <laughs> this was pre TV, you know. There was <laughs> I know no, that would be amazing. So so they didn't go for it. Like the the town did not want him boiling penguins. No, this man was people fought about against him his whole life. I mean, this is a guy who had a tough time of it. And when when he dropped people off um, these these expeditions, uh, do we, it, it's not like he was stepping off the boat onto the ice with a gun, shooting, and then getting back on board. It was like landing on the moon. They had to like drop these guys off, right? It was a huge investment of of men, power, and money. 
Okay. It was a big thing. Yeah. And they had a, a lot of money invested. It was big business. Okay. Much like probably Willen is today. You know, it's not <laughs> it's not cheap to go out there and do that. I, I don't know why, but I foolishly imagined that this would be kind of like um like 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 a, a a story from like the up and comers or, or like the the Gladwell's uh, book about like uh, um, Jewish communities getting together and starting factories for for textiles. I thought this was going to be a slow progression. <laughs> oh no! Where Joseph Hatch skinned a cat once, found out he was good at it, and then went up from there. Uh. This is this is immediately starting with. Let's go take a boat and just destroy wildlife. And just make money. <laughs> uh, well, if you've got a plan, just just start whole hog, I guess. <laughs> it's funny because he, he saw this island and saw how rich it was in just marine life when he was like 26. And just so you know, this continues right up until his late 80s. Yeah. So he had this vision of evil. Nat- Could he think of something better? He's it. obviously a smart guy. Yeah. Uh, his his childhood mobile, like above him spinning in his head, must have been like headless penguins <laughs> exactly. and like f- flipperless seals and stuff. This is just a sick fuck, you know. <laughs> so, um, do we want to talk about whether or not we actually make more money being evil? Do the bad guys, the villainous. Um, do they make more money? This is the one that I wanted answered for myself. I wanted to know um, how evil do I have to be to yeah. make money? Um, <laughs> do I have to be more million to make a more evil to be make a million or a hundred thousand? Right. Right. Yeah. It. it so it, we're really. Uh, I, I I'm not going to speak for Todd, but we're really getting into. Um, uh, personal uh for me this was the big question of my life because i i have a hippie uh father and he used to tell me that evil people are rich people like like the rich people are just evil by nature um and then he also told me that aliens exist uh you can mentally control clouds like he, he really really when i say hippie it's it's like almost I'm surprised he didn't go in a cult somewhere and like try to join the comets like he probably lost some credibility with some of his stuff but some of his stuff he was dead on right a little bit oh my, <laughs> we'll save the trees and how trees can talk to each other and then me having to come to him admit after reading about Amanita fungus later that they actually are in some level of communication Joe that's our childhood trauma episode it is yeah oh we have a whole episode that's going to be a, a season or a whole new podcast um so we're going to we're going to answer that old uh, uh, my dad is going to listen to this and he'll be he'll be pumping his fist he'll be like i was right um so yeah dad you were right uh, rich people are kind of evil um, we're going to go from an article uh, uh, by Wired. This is a fantastic article uh, by Christopher Ryan. Why are rich people so mean? Um, and if you want to pause this episode and then read it and come back, um, you can do that or just read it later. It's a fantastic read. Um, what they focus on here is is first they give us like a, a anecdotal story. So we're going to start with that because I thought that was a great way to analyze uh, the meanness or evilness of rich people. Um, so uh, Christopher here talks about um, a guy who was working in um, uh, California, uh, Hal Steger, who had a net worth of about three point five million, and he was ready to retire with his wife and live off of one hundred seventy five k a year. Uh, he figured it, at his point in life, uh, when he was 51, that he could retire early, and it would be a glorious life. Like, like literally his annual salary would be half of a house uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest, so he was going to be fine. Um, but instead, he, he didn't retire. He stayed on, and he continued to work 12 hours a day um, and 10 hours on the weekends. Uh, and when asked why he chose not to retire, he said, a few million doesn't go as far as it used to. Uh, that was that was his reason why. Um, uh, kind of a similar story uh, with uh, Gary Kremen, uh, the founder of Match.com, who's worth ten million, so he's worth you know more than double Hal Steger. Uh, and he said to the press, uh, "Everyone around here looks at the people above them. You're nobody here at ten million." So as as he's going around. Uh, um, uh, as uh, Christopher Ryan is going around interviewing these guys who are worth enough money to where they should never have to work again, 
they're looking to the people above them and saying, I'm not worth that much, really. And they're comparing themselves. Um, I mean, that's kind of the same way we've talked about this, right? With like, like, you know, Hollywood and cars. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you park your Porsche next to even more rare cars, you don't have as much by comparison. Absolutely. And then the millionaires are looking at their lifestyle and saying, but I can't do what the billionaires do. Not even close. Right. I'm a, I'm a joke. I'm at the kids table here. Right. Yeah. Uh, comparatively, how how am I really doing? I, I have a yacht, sure, but I don't have that private jet yet. We're, we're, we're making that, light of it. but And you see that in athletics and academics, if you only have a bachelor's, and you, you eventually wish you had your master's or PhD, and you that, feel inferior to those people. That is an absolutely perfect way to look at this argument. Uh, that, um, that quickly grounds us. Uh, because everybody listening, me included, were like, oh, yeah, private jet versus yacht. They can both kill themselves. Who cares? A uh, bunch of rich people. We don't have sympathy for them. But if your core value is being an entrepreneur and making money, that would be important to you. That's a great measure. Because it's yeah. a measurable thing. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I, as an academic, I compare my credentials to other academics. Uh, if your real value is is you know uh, how much money you make to your neighbor, um, then that matters. Like if if you have a, a, a an eighteen hour a day job and then your your neighbor makes two dollars more, you compare. You you have to. So um, in Ryan's article, he says, "Why are these guys such a holes? Uh, once they break a million, <laughs> um, does being a villain earn you money, or does the money turn you into a villain?" Um, so it's the chicken or the egg. Um, uh, Ryan has a story uh, uh, where he talks about how he went to India. Um, and he, he has the story in the article that I'm suggesting you read. And he, he shows up and he, he's on this business trip. Um, and he is being begged for money in the streets. Like he's sitting in a diner and kids are coming up to him with their hands out. Starving kids. Starving kids, yeah. I mean, the, they're not being rude, overly rude. They're, they're, they are legit starving. They're, as soon as he's done eating, they're going to come up to the table and grab the whatever he leaves. They're going to eat it. Um, and, and my uncle visited India on a, a tele... Um, he worked in, like, um, telecommunications. And he said the same thing. He's like, it's everyone. It's, it's, it's completely... Um, it's part of the street. Um, and, and Chris Ryan talks about how he had to learn how to insulate himself because when you're seeing that, uh, he said that any American would realize that their car could buy a school here or that it would fund the college and the, the full education from being, you know, a poor starving kid to, to a high schooler just with what you, your house is worth, you know, like there, there's, there's degrees of poverty, um, so what he says is he had to callous himself. Um, sitting there at the diner, he realized that he would have to walk away. Like, he could give them money. He could give them his food. Um, he could consider, you know, funding uh, school or donations. But at some point, you, you do have to walk away. Because you can't help everybody. Right. So what, what money really does to you, it doesn't so much insulate you as it isolates you by force. Um, for me, example... Um, if I had enough money, I would get out of, uh, I have a great living situation. I have nothing to complain about, but with more money, uh, I would live in a place that doesn't have as many roommates. Um, and further from there, if I had even more money after that, I would live in a, a cabin in the woods. Let's say you get a bigger house further away from <laughs> Right, <people. laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not even a negative thing that money isolates you. You do it for comfort. Everyone does. Um, so it, it forces you to callous yourself. You get away from natural. bad neighborhoods. You, yeah, you, you ignore beggars. You, you ignore bad proposals. I mean, if you're starting to make money, if you really have a lot of money, people will come up to you with business proposals or savings proposals or investments. Um, and that's not just in a business sense. Um, people do it when it's like uh, in your real life, in your everyday life, people will come up to you. But then you see everybody who has a job and works in a corporate environment has that, I want to go work for myself and yeah. get out of here and get away from everybody. <laughs> How many times does like a, a cousin or a stepbrother come to you and say, I've got an investment that you're going to be interested in 
and it turns out to be a pyramid scheme or something. And the richer you get, they get more creative and more of them. <laughs> yes. you got to start saying no and getting calloused. Right. So what I'm saying is that everybody listening to this podcast uh, on an electronic device, you've already started the isolation and the callousing yourself. Um, we just haven't gone as far as somebody truly wealthy has. Uh, I want to I want to share with you a couple of fun studies, if you don't mind. And these these are about um, wealth and how um, starting with money can affect your brain. So there's a New York State uh, Psychiatric Institute study uh, that talked about how rich people are more likely to walk out of stores with merchandise they hadn't purchased. Um, and, and it was just a, a general study. They just want to see um, if. The, the whole, um, th- there's a, a myth that poor people steal more often or that they're doing it because they're hungry or that they steal because they feel like there's an entitlement because you're, you're poor. Like, like the, the world owes me because I can't afford this. That's apparently not true. Uh, um, uh, wealthy people are actually more likely to walk out with stuff they haven't purchased um, because they feel entitled because they've been regulars there. They feel like it's almost like a coupon discount. Like, I have spent $900 here this week. I deserve the $10 item for free. Well, and I have something on this that, that, that just leads to this. I used to be in copier sales for some years, and there is a joke in the industry, and it's about two industries, uh, people who own car dealerships and dentists, which is, are two of the more lucrative um, entrepreneurial things to have. Both of those groups of people don't think they should have to pay for things. Right. <laughs> they have that in common. They're the highest earning and they don't and they pay their bills late or they just feel like they don't have to pay them at all. It kind of is right up that alley. Yeah. You and I have anecdotally talked about how celebrities eventually stop having to pay for anything. Um, the, the more you become a personality well-known, the, the more people want to do for you to put your name on their resume. So you, you eventually become so um, isolated by wealth that, that you really actually stop having to react like a person. You don't have to consider what things will cost you quite so much. There was a, another study um, uh, looking at how much people uh, um, contribute uh, as far as like um, uh, compared to taxes. Uh, so the, the, the other uh, myth we want to bust is um, wealthy people contribute more. That they're, they're to society, they they give more. They save like no other, and they give like everybody else. What's that Dave Ramsey says? Oh, I hadn't heard that. That's a good quote. It's not true, but it's a good quote. <laughs> um, it may be true for Dave Ramsey. Um, but they found, uh, uh, this is a study by Independent Sectors, which is a nonprofit coalition. Uh, they found out incomes below 25000 a year gave away 4% of their income. Whereas those earning 150k more, uh, 150k or more a year donated 2.7, so that's four percent versus 2.7. So it's it's not a giant gap, um, but it's still significant because sure. the higher that amount goes and the lower their percentage donation drops, the more of a difference you're looking at. The more significantly that means, and they have um, more expendable income. income from yeah. being over that. Absolutely. Um, higher earners uh, become blind to suffering. Um, uh, from UCLA, they, they pick up less on facial cues. Um, uh, rich people are less generous than the poor, um, according to the University of Toronto. This is a, a study by Stephanie Coat and her colleagues. Um, but they think the distance created by wealth, um, the, it's the differentials that break the flow of human kindness. So when we talk about sitting at a cafe in India, having kids come up to you and, and having to eventually walk away, that you can give out money, you can literally hand them money, but it will never really be enough. Um, uh, from this study, Stephanie Coat, uh, um, her colleagues talk about this where they think that higher income, uh, I'm going to quote the article actually so I don't get this wrong, uh, quote, higher income individuals are only less generous if they reside in highly unequal areas or when inequality is experimentally portrayed as relatively high. So that means if you're a rich uh, American sitting in a cafe in India, that's a high inequality. That's, that's one of the wealthiest people on earth sitting next to the most poor people on earth. Same thing in America. If you are in a city that has 
bad upward mobility and you're surrounded by poverty and impoverished people, you're going to become isolated. You're going to become calloused. You have to. Your, your, your brain has to be able to do that. Protect itself. It protects itself. It protects its own narrative. Um, lastly, and this is the funnest one, I saved the, the, the most amusing uh, study for last. Um, and I, I apologize, I'm fire hosing all of these studies at Utah, but it, they, they all contributed and they're all presented in this Wired article. So much information, Joe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Joe doesn't well, know what has stopped the, the research bud sometimes. I don't. Uh, and, and that's how I live. Um, so just, just to recap real quickly, uh, rich people are more likely to walk out with products they haven't paid for. They donate slightly less percent-wise to their taxes. They're more blind to facial cues of uh, people in poverty. And the greater the difference, uh, the more likely they are to start becoming calloused. Our last study um, comes from UC Berkeley. Uh, and this was a, a famous experiment called Mon the Monopoly Experiment, ran by um, uh, Keltner and Piff. Um, you'll notice in our docs, I don't have any notes on this because I, I had read this enough times to where um, I just enjoyed talking about it at this point. So um, if, if you and I sat down and we started playing Monopoly and I hand you extra money, extra dice, and, and I let you take multiple turns to start with, um, how do you think you would feel about your advantage when we start the game? Do you, would you feel it was unfair? Yeah, I think so. I have an advantage. Okay. Um, over the course of a game, uh, how much do you feel you would be bragging during the game? You think you'd be like bumping your fist that you're winning or would you feel bad about winning? Uh, I'd probably feel, feel pretty good about it. Okay. Um, this was a, 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 they did multiple groups. There was a lot of people involved in this study. Uh, and what they found was um, one of the tests they did is they, they would do this. They, they would give one person playing Monopoly all the advantages on Earth starting the game. And then they would uh, let them play through the game. And they would bring out pretzels. And they put a bowl of pretzels in the middle of the table. And they would let people take them as much as they want. And the person who was winning, who had all these advantages to start out, they, they did nothing to earn it. They just had it. They had the money. They had the extra dice. They had the extra turns. Those people took more pretzels than anyone else. And you think they'd spread around, right? Right. Yeah. But they, they, they ate more at the table. They showed more um, uh, bragging. They, they, over time, they, at the end of the game, uh, they would test them. They'd ask them, you know, how do you feel about your performance? How did you win? And the people who started out with the advantage, they didn't talk about how they had started with an advantage. They didn't even acknowledge that. They, they would sometimes acknowledge it, but by and large, they would mostly talk about their skill and their ability <laughs> and sometimes their luck. Oh, um, boy. So we... we That's insulting. It, it feels insulting. Oh, my God. If you were one of the other people at the table, I would be screaming at that point. Like, they're interviewing the guy who, who took the extra turns. I'd be in the background just being like, no! <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would throw pretzels at them for, for bragging. Um, but no, that's, that's a, a mechanism of, of humans. That's, that's not something to be sad about. That is, um, give us an advantage. We will find reasons why we earned that. And it's just a mechanism to pretend our, uh, protect our psyche. So it's a process, process to justify. It is. Why we deserve because we don't want to feel like a villain sitting there in, in surrounded by poor Indian kids who need food at that moment. We need to be able to justify why we earned what we have. That's, that's great. Well, the executive producer here, Joanne, she's from the Philippines, and she told me this story. And you always hear stories about Americans retiring to the Philippines. And they say, hey, I can live here for $500 a month. It's great. I have a house on the beach. You've heard these people, right? Yeah, yeah. And Joanne said, yeah, that's true, as long as you don't mind seeing starving babies looking at you every single day. Right. And so when she's telling me this, I go, oh, that'd be horrible. I go, so they're just like out there in their diapers, you know, with their hands out. She goes, diapers? There's no diapers. <laughs> and then that to me really registered what callous and what true poverty is. Right. Kids don't have diapers even. Yeah, that that is... Um I can't think of a better example to illustrate all of these points. That is a perfect story, and and that's dead on. It's, yeah, we 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 
Americans sometimes take their advantages to other countries, and that's exactly what it feels like. But I've never heard one of them come back and say anything beyond the beautiful women they hang out, the food they ate, their house on the beach. Right. I've never heard them talk about the horrors that they see because they've obviously callous themselves to it. And right, they they played that monopoly. They they yeah they they took their their extra turns and their extra money, and then they talk about how um, how they've done with it. So um, we can all become the villain. I, that's a horrible. I, I don't like that. That's the takeaway from this. That we can become the villain, but um, and it's okay. It's natural, <laughs> right? Not only is it is it we can become the villain, but our brains are built to over time if we if we go to extreme uh, differences. Um, but but because Hatch was such a villain so early, um, he didn't get to start with the Monopoly tokens. So. How did his political career go? How did he justify all this, the the boiling of animals? Okay, our villain CEO here of the penguin oil industry. He started out as a pharmacist. He opened his own pharmacist in town. Then he became a, a town member. Of the, uh, he started the town's chamber of commerce. Then he was the city's postmaster. And then he worked in other departments in the clean water and uh, the gas division. But then he was, became the mayor and he peaked as a member of the House of Representatives. And that was at an age 47. So from the age 26, he went from a pharmacy to running all these different civil groups to mayor and then House of uh, Representatives. So he literally worked his way all through town, like every job in town he could have had. He did, so, and he's a smart guy, an expert in everything, so I'm sure he made a lot of contacts. In my mind, just please tell me that like cats and dogs went missing everywhere he went. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't say that he, he started a humane society, okay. <laughs> a pet smart right. adoption event. <laughs> Wherever he went, just animals yeah. disappeared. I know, I'm thinking, that's what I was thinking about this thing. You could put, pretty much grind anything into oil. Right. So, so he became mayor at some point. He was mayor, yep. So that gave him some political power. Again, he had his supporters. As hated as he was, and I think this stands true today, these people who we see as, why are they even born? Mm-hmm. 50% of the people still think, you know, believe in them. I, I think success is attractive, and, and not in just the idea that they will give you their table scraps, I think seeing somebody successful makes you think they've got a plan that they, they something they're doing. I mean, do you get that sense uh, when you when you read about successful people? I think so. It seems like yeah, it seems exactly what we said. It's about fifty fifty. And you look at any politician. And let's say you're the president of the United States in any or president of any country. Half of your country usually doesn't like you. Yeah. You know, they loathe you. They say things about you. They protest against you. And that's if you're one. <laughs> yeah. And then the other half and me say, let's hear them out. <laughs> <laughs> you just like to see a good car accident, that's all. Well, that's the side I'm on, yeah. I'm on the side of the car accident or the train wreck. So what did he, what did he do after Mayor? Was that his... When did we get into the, the penguins? Well, now, now he denied any plans. He was out poaching on his boat, the poacher. Okay. And he denied that he was poaching seals, but then he got he got um, exposed. Um, so most of the people hissed and booed him when he go up and speak. So he actually lost his uh, political power. He lost his House representative seat. So from doing his business illegally, he got kicked out of office. Oh, okay. So so there were actual repercussions to to poaching. Twenty years later. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) and just because he could, you know, he couldn't do his day job and this. I mean, the guy's ambitious, right? I mean, he's out killing whales. That he's running office and he's got businesses. A busy guy. That's like me being mayor and stealing car stereos, and (laughs) somebody calling me on it twenty years later, just being like, "What do you mean? I didn't know I couldn't do this." It's like they can't fill that tank of greed. Like, how much do you really need? It's kind of what you're talking about earlier. I need to be able to control town and poach. So the London Zoology Society started to demand a change. They had sent um, photographers out that was very powerful, and some reports were, were made. And a lot of the scientists had gotten involved in 
what the long-term loss was going to be. And the King Penguin, uh, they made this report, and this is, quote, the King Penguin draws near the end of its history. Let me tell you how history is closing. These birds are being murdered wholesale for their oil. Parties of men land and club them upon their nest, from which the poor silly things refuse to stir. The dead and stunned, the living and dead together, are dragged away and thrust into iron crates to be boiled down for their oil. So this being reported is disgusting. You can see just pounds of some live penguins, some dead penguins, and mangled. And they're just saying this is enough. And they also did the math on that they're going that they're flirting with an extinction, and they need to save these animals. And then when they start seeing the photos with these cute little penguins, it was time for change, and the London Zoology S- Society demanded it. Okay, that that seems to be to me whenever I read articles about this, uh, public opinion matters that actually when all the public wants something that's when change really actually starts to to occur and i think when people start to see it the visualized made a big deal too yeah when it's just happening over on an island and it's a public debate it's one thing but we know the power of you know visual symbols and how our news is today right you see a picture and you you hear a narrative and it actually has an effect and it gets the emotional side the nerve so, theoretical, I don't actually have this, but um, if I had an actual penguin here in your house, um, how much money for you to boil it? <laughs> no amount of if money. If I had a stack of cash, like a million dollars, would you boil a penguin? No, you've seen how we treat our our $5 free cat we have. That's tr- yeah, that is true. It, it eats better than we do. It sleeps in a king-size bed. <laughs> that... that- We'd make a, uh, uh, we put ice in the in the tub. We'd make a little um, Sea World for this penguin. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The, the penguin would own the house by the end of it. Um, okay. Well, I, I probably wouldn't boil a penguin too. Uh, maybe enough money. I was but... say fifteen hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fifteen. Just give me fifteen bucks. I'll boil a penguin. I don't know this penguin. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much? How much money do I owe the penguin? Um, so this, the reason I ask that question is, um, we, we always want to ask the question, can we reform? Like, could we have taken Joseph Hatch and walked him aside and, and turned him into a good person again? How can, can this callousing of, of rich, uh, and wealthy people, can we uncallous someone? Can we remind somebody of their humanity and, and get them to, to not act evil, I guess. Callus isn't evil, but, but generally, Joseph Hatch was pretty evil. Um, and, and the answer uh, that I found, delightedly, uh, uh, is yes, you can totally reform people. All you have to do is re-expose them to a social atmosphere that is equitable. That's all challenging, but um, I'll start to break that down. We're going to go through some, some more experiments in science here. Um, they did a, a, a test once uh, to see who was most, um, I don't know, cautious on the road or, or more aware of other people, where they had um, people step off the sidewalk. They would make eye contact with the driver. They'd step off the sidewalk, uh, and they were measuring to see which drivers would ignore them purposefully and just breeze past them, like not let them walk. Um can you guess what type of car people drove that were the worst drivers? It's sports cars. Sports cars. That's a good answer. Yeah, like Porsches and stuff. Uh, think more luxury and more wealthy. The, the Mercedes, BMWs. Boom. Yeah, that It was BMW drivers. So if you know someone who drives a BMW, <laughs> do not step in front of them <laughs> while they're driving. They will run you over. <laughs> they're callous pricks. If you know someone who drives a BMW, look this study up on the internet. It's the B, uh, just write BMW car test or sidewalk test, and you'll have fodder or ammunition to throw at them at your next dinner party. Um, so we're going to talk about how to uncallous people. Um, this is, again, another study from UC Berkeley uh, by the same team. Uh, they invented a game where participants who showed the greatest generosity uh, with their money benefited from the respect of their peers uh, and they got cooperation uh, when they were given social influence. Uh, 
Um, so, so to phrase that uh, differently, the game rewarded them socially instead of uh, with money. So the more generous they were during the game, the more control they had, the more people listened to them, the more social uh, rewards there were. Um, and I'm going to quote their findings here. Uh, quote, The findings suggest that anyone who acts only in his or her narrow self-interest will be shunned, disrespected, and even hated. But those who behave generously with others are held in high esteem by their peers and thus rise in status. Um, So this just shows that um, there's more social status and generosity than there is in money. And it totally worked. Like just the simple game made them more generous it made them want the status of social status more than they wanted the money status. Uh, and this, this kind of crosses uh, countries, too. In any country that we look at where money isn't held as much of a status symbol, um, people don't care about it nearly as much. Um, social status and, and respect are really what humans crave as people it's just that we show that uh, affirmation to people with wealth here in America. So if you have wealth here in America, you get the respect and you get the social uh, status. Uh, there was another study that reinforced this that, that kind of backed it up for me. Um, they showed people uh, or primed them, uh, study uh, participants, with a 46-second video about childhood poverty. Uh, and they... they had them document their their wealth so they knew which participants were rich and how much how many were poor uh rich participants rich subjects uh who were willing to help a stranger who appeared in distress in the lab uh, they, they were willing to help way more often after watching this video so just seeing a video that shows them social need somewhere else in the world made them willing to help somebody who was in the lab with them who was struggling with something who needed help so that's a transformation. That's a quick one. That's a forty six yeah, seconds. Forty six seconds. <laughs> They've been living forty six years greedy, and they see this. Right. So that's from the same article, the same Wired article. Why are rich people so mean? Uh, they bring up all these studies, and, and that really just tells me that all we need in life to reform anyone who is wealthy and quote unquote evil, or who has isolated themselves. All you need to do is remind them that we value uh, social leaders. We value and respect people who are generous. And I've seen this in my Christian life in the church where there's people who will be ruthless in their business practices and just the way they live their life. But at church, they will give to raise their their status in the church. I can't think of a better example of this, but that's that's exactly right. Another one that popped into my head was... um, the multi-billionaires from the Industrial Revolution of Rockefeller and Carnegie, they would do anything coming up to make money, to become who they were, to get the power. They didn't care about child labor laws. They didn't care about anything. They they had their workers die. Pouring molten iron on people by accident. That's what they said. And in in their factories, there wasn't a gray hair on anybody because you didn't live that long. But those same two men towards the end of their life, they gave away money more quicker than they did making it and, and more competitively right? to get that status, to get the Carnegie libraries and the Rockefeller centers. So that's right. right what you're talking about. And those two guys were in direct competition with each other too. So I remember um, uh, one very brief anecdote about they would send each other gifts and they were always like digs. Like right. they were always jokes. Yeah, because Rockefeller was a non-drinking Presbyterian, so he sent so him he a bottle of booze. Yeah, and then, and then uh, Carnegie, I think he sent Carnegie because he came up poor. Yeah. He sent him like a paper vest. So. <laughs> so they were in it for the status, but you're right. They they, they gave. And that but with their names on the buildings and the, yep. you can see it. This is exactly what you're talking Rockefeller about. Rockefeller Center, the Carnegie, uh, yeah, the it's exactly right. But 20 years earlier, they didn't care about the factory worker who died and had a family who was homeless and starving now. Right. <clears throat> yeah, there wasn't a lot of social status uh, to be won at that point. So speaking of social status and, and radical change, um, how how did the public campaign against Hatch go? Like, how? I mean, we want to see a villain fall. We didn't start this podcast. We weren't going to end with... And Joseph Hatch lived prosperly ever after boiling penguins. So how did things eventually turn? 
things started to come, all the walls started to cave in on them. And they actually started, they did, um, the Sydney Morning Herald did a uh, look into his license and turned out that his license was null and void. So he was doing all this poaching and he didn't have the right to be doing that. Okay. So all the government agencies all came down on him at once. Um, so he put his whole life into, instead of boiling penguins and selling the oil, which he made a lot of money for a long time, he was out trying to clear his name. Mm. He's in his 80s now. So he wanted the social respect more than he wanted. Yeah. Um, speech after speech. Um, he had a lot of government people still in his pocket, but they wanted blood. They wanted him gone. <laughs> they wanted him in a vat. Yeah. Cruelty became kind of a soft spot to people. It's kind of what you're talking about with the, the 46-second video. Mm-hmm. When they started seeing these poor penguins um, being killed and started seeing pictures of them, it, it just became uncool to penguin kill. Right. And that social pressure of everybody, uh, the, the public turning against him, the it sounds like the governments had to act after that. He did. Now, he lost some commercial property. Um, his sons had to kind of, they were in um, save mode. You know, there, there was all these leaks in the boat. So they're trying to take money from this and put out. So his whole fortune went back to the city and it was all gone. Okay. And... On his deathbed, now the man lived this nasty cuss to the ripe old age at 91. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he didn't just die and have a heart attack or get hit by a train or whatever happened in those days. He he just kind of wasted away. So his family was there taking care of him. But at the end of it, he wasn't in a big mansion, waterfront, having his own island. He was living in a tiny cottage with his family around him on a pension of about a dollar and a half a week. Okay. Which I don't think is very much. I don't know the tr- I don't know the uh, <laughs> inflation rate. <laughs> I don't think that was ever much. So yeah, I, I, I feel even in Roman times. <laughs> yeah. So the gist of it was he was broke. Okay. Well, at least him dying at ninety one backs up our whole our study about cynics live longer. <laughs> <laughs> well. At the, at the end, um, a reporter came to see him for his last thing. And they said he was just, he still had that wild look in his eye. <laughs> you know? So it was really, their spirit's a real thing. I'm convinced by it, by this guy. Yeah. Only the good die young. <laughs> well, then we need to turn cynical real quick. <laughs> now I have a theory, Joe. This is just from my research and my reading. I think the family were circling around him at the end just to see what was left over. Oh. But the very last property he had, he only had one thing left to will, and it was still the um, the oil property. He willed it to them, but he told them they weren't allowed to sell it. That was the... So he still believed in it, even after it, all this negative positive. <laughs> That's like a curse. I mean, it shows his naive belief that, like, we will boil penguins again, but it's also a curse on the family, basically. And so you know that those daughters were probably thinking of taking the pillow and putting it right over his head and say, you son of a bitch. (laughs) I would have killed you two years ago if I knew that you were going to will me something I can't sell, has no value. Oh, my God. There would be bagpipes playing as I lowered him in a vat. Like, it would would be. (laughs) A rusted vat and digest him. Right. What a miserable cuss. (laughs) It might surprise you, but cynicism and anger, the hallmarks of villainy, can totally pay off. Anger can aid you in your decision making, making you more discriminatory against bad information. And not repressing anger can have health benefits, both against cancer and hypertension. Cynics can experience more stable relationships, make more money, and generally live longer. But you don't necessarily need to become miserable old cuss to achieve these things. Because the binding theme of cynics and cranks is this. 
Allow your emotions to be recognized and expressed in healthy ways. Be realistic with yourself and with your expectations. And yes, if you've ever suspected that rich people are assholes, it's true. Study after study has shown that wealthy earners callous themselves, isolate themselves, and get used to saying no as a requisite to having wealth at all. Rich people can become blind to social cues, become less generous with their donations, and have a tendency to blame their good fortune or their inheritance on their own skills and smarts instead of luck. But we have to keep something in mind. This callousness isn't a rich condition. It's a human condition. It's an internal defense, a way to make sense of our absurdly good fortune in a world where extreme poverty exists. And we know this because the calluses formed by the wealthy against the poor form quickest in areas of extreme inequality. And like Scrooge, these calluses are reversible. Nobody wants to think of themselves as a villain, not even our penguin killer Joseph Hatch, who lived to the ripe old age of 91, still defending his practice of boiling penguins, still trying to keep his oil enterprise afloat, still surrounded by family and pictures of his sailboats. You've been listening to Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com where we have research links, show notes, and blog articles for each episode. We also appreciate feedback and we love spirited debates. We are not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Now, speaking of opinions, um, I have uh, one of our very first show corrections. Now, I'm sure we're going to have more of these, but um, a correction from our last episode, if everybody was listening, uh, we mentioned that uh, functional MRIs, we used that study, and we also mentioned hormones like oxytocin in uh, relation to pets and whether or not they actually love us. Just as a correction, I was reading from two studies there, and I forgot to mention that, so I made it sound like Functional MRIs can measure hormones. That's not the case. Those were two different studies. Um, so I, I forgot to cite those. Uh, also, speaking of not being experts. So we're, we're sorry. We're not vets, but we're getting better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that was, that was a, a case of um, mishandling the citation, um, not so much the information. Um, also, Todd, uh, do you want to read a review for this episode? Look at iTunes five-star reviews from Kaylee Allen. Very helpful and informative. Two dynamic voices helping you navigate through some of the more difficult mindsets in life. Highly appreciate this podcast and the self-help it offers. Almost like therapy. Thanks, Kaylee Allen. Very <laughs> Almost cool. like therapy. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Kaylee, very much. We really appreciate it. We work very hard on this show, and we, we love our listeners. And if any of you want to leave a review on iTunes, uh, we will eventually get to reading it. So go ahead and drop it in there if you have time. And we will read the bad ones, too. We'll laugh at those. Oh, I can't wait for the one stars. <laughs>